This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to the MedTalk podcast, a show bringing you the latest news across life sciences, hosted by myself, Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News. Joining me today as co-host is Rhys Armstrong, the editor of European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer. On today's episode, we're going to have a look at some of the latest COVID-19 developments and also examine two critical reports that have been released. One of those is the NHS white paper that details reforms to the way England's health services are governed and delivered. And second, as a report looking at the competitiveness of the life sciences industry. Uh, hello, Rhys, and uh, let's move on to our COVID-19 updates. And I think we're going to start with the head of the UK's Vaccines Task Force, Sir Clive Dix, telling Sky News that everybody in the UK could receive both doses of a vaccine by August or September, or sooner if needed, as there's huge confidence in supply levels. First of all, your reaction? Yeah, that's quite a bold claim, I think, but considering we didn't think we'd achieve targets of vaccinating 15 million people by February, it it might be possible. We have the supplies, certainly, and it looks like the infrastructure is in place to do that. I suppose we're going to have to see what the the R rate, the infection rate, is like going forward um, and how the vaccines are, are working, and hopefully we won't come into any more supply issues. Um, to get the doses available to people. But it's, it, it doesn't seem impossible. It seems bold, but not not undoable. What do you think, Ian? I'm interested by the if-we-need-to uh, line in there, because, or, or sooner if needed, to use as precise words, because they've got huge confidence in the supply levels. But I think it is needed. I think it might be a case if you're looking at this uh, as a member of the public and you're reading that, you'd be thinking of three words and they are read the room. Um, everyone wants to get back to normal as quickly as possible. And I think, you know, they have, they've done very well so far, but it, the sooner we are back to normal, the better. And, and if you can, you know, if you can vaccinate everybody within this time, this time frame, go for it. Yeah, I don't understand why they wouldn't, realistically. It seems, you know, that wording is a bit a bit off because surely our goal is to vaccinate our entire population against it. So, you know, the, the economy can recover, people can get back to their, to their lives normally, hospitals can start um, operating again under a, a less than maximum capacity. Yeah, it doesn't seem to me that it's a choice really that you, or or you don't need to make it a choice just if you can do it do it and i think that i think i always thought from the outset that was supposed to be the case if you can do it do it so um yeah i think that, i think that's very strange wording but i think the content of the interview itself is is actually encouraging in terms of both the rollout and supply and i think that actually does lead us nicely on to uh, supply of vaccine because I believe you've got a story on a on a European pharmaceutical manufacturer about the Novavax vaccine. Yes, so that this is um, what we were talking about last week as well. As, as well. Novavax 
their vaccine um, for COVID-19 has shown good efficacy um, in interim phase three clinical trials in the UK. And now they have pledged to donate 1.1 billion doses of its vaccine to the COVAX scheme, which as we were discussing last week is the equitable scheme set between uh, the World Health Organization, Gavi and CEPI to so they fairly distribute COVID-19 vaccines um, all across the world, uh, especially to poor and developing nations. So that's a massive number of doses that they have supplied there. Um, I haven't seen the log logistics of it in terms of when they expect to donate those supplies. But one thing that is of interest here is how Novavax has licensed its vaccine technology um, to SII to um, essentially help increase manufacturing capacity, which is an important point. Uh, SII, just for clarification, um, is the Serum Institute in India, who they are working with, and it'll be the Serum Institute of India, yes, um, where the vaccine doses are going to be manufactured and distributed. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting point, how they have just willingly essentially given their technology or their IP to SII to help increase that global capacity. I think that's a very important collaborative thing that pharmaceutical companies and agencies should be doing, but which we haven't seen that much of really in terms of sharing IP and you know patent protected things like that. So good news, it should help COVAX reach, they're trying to reach 2 billion doses of its vaccine to be distributed in 2021. So once, hopefully once it gets approved, that will help us, um, you know, start to reach those global vaccination numbers a little bit better than, we, than uh, countries have been doing now. Yeah, I think you've uh, touched upon collaboration. I mean, uh, uh, I think it's a, from the conversations that I've had with people in uh, across the industry, it's it's not for want of trying. I think it's more of a pra practicality sort of thing of look beyond when we're looking beyond COVID. Uh, you know, uh, at the end of the, the end of the day, it's still a business, and but right now they've got social responsibility and and they are acting as a public service almost while yeah. operating in the private sector. Um, you know, we've mentioned the um, uh, Novavax and the. Um, uh, surplus vaccine supply. I think this leads nicely into the pledge from the UK government of donating most of their sur surplus vaccine supply to poorer countries. Uh, this is in a speech to the virtual G7 from uh, from uh, Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, politically, uh, it's uh, tying into the quote unquote global Britain uh, message, um, but it. You know, we, we I think we we spoke two weeks ago, didn't we, about the the importance of of the richer countries actually providing vaccines for for lesser developed countries because it's it's not just a case of anti poverty; it's a case of by allowing these um, allowing these countries to be properly vaccinated, you, you're also protecting yourself at home as well. Yeah, the, the better we can distribute vaccines across the world, the safer we all are in the in the long run. Um, once global travel and things like that can start to get back on the move, then economies can start to, op to open, events can start 
uh, returning, you know, people can get back to normal. But yeah, really positive news that Boris Johnson himself has pledged that. I know earlier in the week he was warning, and so was the director of the World Health Organization, about um, vaccine nationalism, essentially, and the hoarding of, of um, surplus vaccines. So it's good that Boris Johnson's come forward and, and pledged those um, surplus vaccines. Because I think we've got maybe 500 million COVID-19 doses for a population of 68 million people. And when most of those are two doses, you think, okay, 250 million doses, potentially some go, um, you know, lost in, tra in, in transit or, or, or whatever, or there was a case where a few batches were lost due to a refrigerator being turned off recently. So I suppose they do have to take into account, you know, loss and damage and things like that, but having that much surplus seems a, a, a bit a, a bit much, a bit excessive. Yeah, you're talking to the uh, de degree of surplus. It's funny that uh, President Macron from France told the Financial Times that richer countries should send up to 4 to 5% of their current vaccine supplies to poorer nations. But uh, James Cleverley, who's the member of the cabinet in the UK government, he's the Foreign Office Minister, saying that the UK would be looking at a figure significantly greater than that. Um, given that the numbers that you've uh, that you've supplied us with, uh, Reese, um, it should be closer to forty percent rather than four percent. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the figures are for France in terms of how much they've supplied. I'm sure it won't be too difficult to find out. But four to five percent sounds quite measly if you can compare it to what the UK has purchased. Yeah, and I think we actually went through the the European Union's got a, va a vast amount, despite their well-documented issues with AstraZeneca, the, uh, uh, the, there's a vast amount of vaccines that have been procured by the European Union as well. There's, I think we've emphasised already that there's more than enough to go around. Um, but uh, I think it's also worth uh, touching upon uh, not just uh, how, how much vaccination there is on offer, but the fact that children are now starting to be tested for the for the AstraZeneca vaccine at Oxford. Um, I'm just I'm just curious about your thoughts on this because the do you remember the when we uh, initially went into lockdown? They were talking about you know the younger you are, the more immune you were to catching it in the first place. And now a year on, uh, young children are being are being tested. Yeah, I I haven't read too much into this, to, to be honest, Ian, but I'd suspect it comes about from the emergence of the COVID-19 variants that we've been seeing. I know just from bits of, bits of news that I've been reading um, that those variants are more likely to, not more likely to infect children, but children are more likely to be infected compared to the previous variants that have been circulating. So maybe it's a chance to just see how effective um, AstraZeneca's vaccine is in case we, we need it. So essentially the company is doing due, due diligence for potential future variants or the variants that are, are maybe more susceptible to uh, to infect children. Yeah, I mean, it isn't the, uh, the new variant conversation I think is going to be here for a while because the initial strategy from everybody was, or from the UK certainly, was to learn to live with COVID, which... If you actually ask me now, it's a case of why, because viruses mutate, and lo and behold, here are the mutations. So it, it feels feels a bit like 
you know, a be- better policy earlier on could have prevented this from happening, but now we're in this situation. It, this does appear to be the uh, the right approach. Yeah, it could be something like you know people have compared it to the to the flu vaccine, how we get that every year. Eventually, once it dies down, it will the the idea of living with it won't be you know the idea of having tens of thousands of cases in the UK at all times. It will be the case that we get it down to a minimum, and potentially at certain times of the year infections do rise but we have the vaccine in the vaccine boosters at hand to protect against the population uh, to protect the population against COVID-19 as we see with like the flu over the winter period so I, I imagine that's where that those comments come from right now I can't see it ever going away you know to a zero percent um inf- infection rate yeah, this seems to be my worry is that it is still being treated and there is a mindset that it's still being treated as an element of a flu you know but I think we discussed two weeks ago it's a reason that we mm-hmm. went into lockdown and to protect the NHS is because the NHS is prepared for winter flu seasons and it's not prepared for, it's not prepared for a virus that, that transmits like COVID-19 and is, and is deadly um, I think, given that we've actually mentioned uh, AstraZeneca, you've had, you had the story uh, yeah. in, the, in the past week about the Drug Safety Research Unit beginning post-authorization safety study on the vaccine to uh, to analyse its uh, potential side effects. Can you give us a bit more info- insight into that? Yeah, sure. So it's what we were talking about on the last episode as well, when we were, we were talking, um, discussing how important these post-market, post-authorization studies are to assess the long-term safety of how vaccines, you know, operate and the the side effects that can come about. So, um, yeah, this has been done to, I think it's to essentially get near near enough to real-time data on the side effects that patients are um, experiencing from the the, the AstraZeneca's um, and Oxford's COVID-19 vaccine. So the, uh, the Drug Safety Research Unit, uh, it's based in Southampton. They will, I think, enroll at least 10,000 patients. And essentially, they'll be contacted at regular intervals after receiving their vaccine and will report any any side effects. And I think one thing you have to clarify is just that the, you know, the safety of the vaccines when they're going through clinical trials are the utmost important to pharmaceutical companies they will already have an exhaustive, extensive list of side effects that they have seen within their clinical trials. Uh, part of those will or will not be adverse uh, or serious adverse effects, which could be life-threatening, and that's the reason why we've got these vaccines now, because we believe they're safe, they are safe. But these you know, ma- massive trials, like 10,000 people, and I, I assume once we start doing more of these and other countries start doing more, more of these, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of pieces of data. You can just start to see a, a bit more of a clearer picture as to how they affect people uh, on, the, on the long term. Uh, I've just got a, uh, a layman's question, if you, if you don't mind me asking here, because you're, you're closer to the farming industry than, than I am. In, in the case of um, side effects when it comes to any, any kind of uh, vaccine or, or drugs mm-hmm. to treat any, any kind of condition, is it a case that where in these studies are, are they continuously trying to refine the treatment yeah. so these side effects are, are minimalized going forward? 
Um, I, I don't I don't think so. Obviously, they have to assure themselves that it's safe. So any side effects reported, I think they, they have to um, disclose, obviously, because sake of transparency. Um, but in terms of development, I'm not too sure about that, Ian. Um, when you profile a drug target, you do you, you screen thousands of different molecules to see how they interact with, you know, either like a drug tumor, for instance, or different biology. Um, and this is me speaking off the top of my head, so, you know, sorry if it's not uh, totally, totally accurate. Um, I don't know how easy it would be to adapt such a, um, you know, that in-depth of a process or a molecule like that. Um, maybe if, I suppose, like, take the case of chemotherapy, um, an essential service for cancer, but it's one that brings about, you know, like, awful side effects, like, really, ba really bad. Um, and then they have to work, like, clinicians will have to work out which treatments go alongside that to reduce side effects of the chemotherapy. Um, something like that wouldn't be ideal for, you know, a vaccine, just because of the amount of, you know, grief it's going to cause people if they're and being dizzy and you know you know having all these other different types of side effects so I, I assume that if there were really bad adverse serious side effects then it would it wouldn't come to market because it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be safe and it wouldn't be ideal for public use just feel like that i may have just stumbled across a potential future episode there so if somebody wants to come on and talk about it feel free to get in touch with us um Vaccines aside, um, testing is, is still a massive, massive part of trying to bring the pandemic under control worldwide. Um, just a little bit of a tease for people who are, who are regular listeners. I've got um, an interview with uh, Beckman Coulter about uh, the strategy of uh, testing, antibody testing, and then vaccines, and then how we eventually try and come back to normality is, is pretty much all touched upon in that episode. So uh, uh, keep your eyes and your ears peeled for that one. Well, the reason I come on to testing is because uh, the U.S. government has actually awarded $232 million contract for COVID-19 home testing uh, to one particular firm. Um, I'm wondering, Reese, do you envisage this is a route that the U.K. may eventually go down? I'm not too sure because, you know, speaking from my own perceptions, a, ho a home use test, I, I would need to understand that is it a private test, which you have to pay, which the public have to pay for themselves, or would it be supplied through a healthcare service? The fact that it's being sold in the US market sounds like potentially you get it either through your insurance or it's something you can buy yourself. I can't imagine, you know, especially when testing becomes so readily available. I know we've had a lot of issues with getting tests for large parts of the UK, but I don't know if that is under control now, but certainly... I've had a test done and it was quite easy to access and all the other people who've had issues and other people who've had who haven't had issues. But if the testing services are available, why would you want to buy a home test unless you are, you know, desperate for one and you can't get it? It's sort of putting the impetus on the public rather than the government to ensure safety. I mean that that feels a bit like uh, the uh the strategy all along if you well, from a certain point of view, you might well argue that. <laughs> um, but yeah, th this uh, particular um, uh, test that I refer to is from an is a Antiotex long-term customer, Elume. That's E-double-L-U-M-E. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
the it's a digitally enabled uh, solution. Um, uh, but I think we, we've seen COVID-19 home testing in this country, but the, the, the PCR test and, and you got lateral flow test as well. But this one seems to be uh, more digitally enabled. The fact that you can actually, uh, yeah. it, it, the, the, the result can show up on your phone. So, uh, and there's no no prescription. I, I, I think this might actually, this is one, this is one of the cases of trying to take a load of uh, hurdles out of the way. So, it's 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 an access thing more than anything that I see as this as this selling point. But as you've said, access to testing has actually become you know far far easier as the pandemic's gone on. When they moved away from targeted testing to mass testing, I mean it's when you actually go and book a test on the government website, yeah. it's, it's hardly the most stringent test to pass to actually go and get a test. No, we were. Um, it was just before Christmas when we had to get our test, and we did it within about forty five minutes. Which was brilliant because before, um, parts of our family were being told to travel up to Scotland for a test when they live in the northeast. Um, you know, and there was all those stories about people having to travel to the Isle of Wight for a test or, or something crazy like that, wasn't there? So you have to get mm. on a ferry to a <laughs> to get a COVID nineteen diagnostic test. But I mean, don't get me wrong; the technology is brilliant that, that we've developed, and the fact that it's available. Um, it is great, but I just can't see it being, you know, like that, that much of a, of a strategy in terms of getting out of it. I think that's going to rely more on the mass testing that we've been doing as a as a, as a country as a whole. Moving on from um, from COVID nineteen, um, because this it's been an interesting time to uh, publish a white paper from the government. I, I think we'll find. Um, unless there's anything else that you want to cover on on the COVID side of things. No, I'm 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 good there, Ian. I mean, we could talk for two hours about COVID nineteen, but um, <laughs> we'll we'll do the NHS white paper because it's such an important talking point. It really is. Another reorganisation of the NHS is on the cards after um, Matt Hancock published this white paper. Um, the headlines surrounding it are focused on more powers for ministers when it comes to the NHS. Um, I've got uh, a question for you here, Reese, and I think this is a question that should be answered by anybody mm-hmm. even remotely connected to the NHS and, and with government. Is it the right time that this happens before a public inquiry takes place? Because there are so many things that are going to be under scrutiny, such as the role of cabinet, the health secretary, preparedness of the NHS, procurement. There's a lot of things here that all factor that all potentially factor into this white paper. Are you really is is now the right time to absolutely give government more power over the NHS when you know its its role in this, regardless of whether they've done well or not, will need to be investigated so lessons can be learned into how to handle a future situation like this. So I'll I'll open up the floor to you. Yeah, I don't think now is the right time at all because if you you know if there was an inquiry and blame is laid at the foot of Matt Hancock or whoever, like personnel within the cabinet can change, right? And we all we all know that when personal change, personnel change, um, policies can reflect their opinion on the state of the health service. So I would, I would just argue, get all of that out of the way, focus on where we can improve the NHS in terms of getting it ready um, or getting it out of a COVID-19 situation. And, and then and then look at that. I know reforms arguably are are, are needed since 
Lansley's and and Jeremy Hunt's tenure. And maybe Matt Hancock is, you know, he's, 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 he comes across as a very eager person to his detriment at times. And now, you know, having this white paper, I think it's a, it's a good reflection of why we need change. COVID, like COVID-19 has been, has been that. But certainly, I would just say, you know, get the inquiry out of the way, get COVID-19 situation done with and then look at that. Yeah, it's fascinating that it's the right time for this, but it's not the right time for a public inquiry. But um, I will uh, mention what, one, of, one or two things in this white paper that I found interesting. There's a couple of excerpts I think uh, I think that are worth noting. Uh, one excerpt was, and I quote, the NHS should be free to make decisions on how it organises itself without the involvement of the Competition and Markets Authority. We'll also reform how healthcare services are arranged by creating a bespoke health services provider selection regime. The NHS and Competition Markets Authority mentioned in the same sentence is going to send shivers down the spine of, uh, of, of anybody, but this actually looks like reducing the role of competition, it, it, from my perspective anyway. I'm not sure what your reading is into that. Yeah. Um, so the CMA's involvement with the NHS has been... What, like what I've been reading about, it's been quite decisive in terms of CCGs, the clinical commission commissioning groups, in what essentially services they can offer, um, you know, w- w- within trusts uh, and things things like that. And the idea of it came about from the 2012 reform when they wanted to make competition a large part of the NHS, so serv- like different services could be offered up, up and down the country, um, depending on where they were needed. Um, I think the CMA has a large part in governing the fairness of competition between, say, like um, pharmaceutical manufacturers. There's been instances of pricing and um, rights to sales, which the CMA has overlooked um, and basically put a foot down and, and stopped a lot of it happening, which is great. But when you have something that can dictate what services are going to be run dependent on the cost and the fairness of that. It's surely that should be up to the people within the, the organisation and not a third party. Yeah, I, I entirely agree with you. Um, the um, I think that, that was the main criticism of the Lansley reform in the first place is that uh, I think if from, a, from a political standpoint, the noise was around. This is, provide, this is allowing the private sector to step into the, the health service more. Uh, I think it's that statement alone shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, the focus. It should be how is the private sector stepping into the health service? You know, I, I actually, the, the, I'm probably going to get a few pelters from people who, uh, you know, who I associate with. But it, it's a case of if it offers a good service and it's good, and it's you know, yeah, offers a good service and it's good. I know, yeah, uh, well, it's a terrible way to word it, but still. If it if it's effective and it and it's beneficial to the public and it and still and it still and it still provides healthcare free at the point of need then then that's what the NHS stands for, you know it's providing healthcare at, at front and centre and anything that can be done to improve that service you know it should be looked at. Um, this I'm just a little concerned about. Does this now mean there's more intervention powers for the Secretary of State? I mean, that actually does seem to be uh, 
that's that that was the feeling that I got from the from the document itself. Is that it's, it feels a bit more like an an interventionist centralized policy that's coming about rather than you know devolving it to regional NHS. If if you follow me. Yeah, it's a tough one with the ministerial control because I think we are, we should be depending on the NHS trusts as individual organisations because right like the NHS is you you can look at it as just this one one thing that health it, it's a healthcare provider to people in the UK which it is but it's also this unfathomable beast of an organisation you know it employs what five million people across the world or something like that um global, like in total um that might that figure may be weird wrong by the way but <laughs> just just to clarify um but you know it's it's this massive employer um you have individual NHS trusts clinical commissioning groups you have primary care within GPs and then outside of that you've got the social care service right um and within the entirety of the UK the population needs, the popu- like the health population needs of individual cities and districts and whatnot, um, are, um, are varied, mass- massively depending on where you live. So poverty can affect that. Your ethnicity can affect that. You know how well you eat, whether you're obese, if you smoke, how much you drink, and that will be different in each location of the UK. So to look at it as an overall thing is really tough. And for the minister to to say this is what's needed overall isn't correct. But I think the one thing I took out of this document is, um, first of all, they're not wanting to do that. They're wanting to give more power to trusts or um, I think there's a, I think it might be integrated care services. They wanted to call it, mm-hmm. um, to overall target the needs of a population to see them to try and just overall. Uh, uh, improve longevity and get more people out of hospital and prevent people from going to hospital but there is a lot of criticism on on the points you've been talking about as well Ian Yeah I I think you're actually right to highlight the the regional disparities almost of the the population of the UK when it talks about the NHS as one thing because they've all got though the NHS stands for one thing which is you know uh, free healthcare at the point of delivery. It ha- it is serving a population of different needs. It's a case of, you know, well, as you said, there's life expectancy in in different parts of the country, uh, mortality rates, the, uh, you know, b- basically how likely people are to get ill. I, I think that's actually been highlighted by COVID. I mean, you know, you actually just look at where people have died across this country. It, it has been yeah. the poorer in society. I think they have actually felt a need to act on the back of that. Not entirely sure this is the right way to go about it, but you know, I think only time will tell. I think if they were to, if their approach was, here is our starting point, and we can move on this, then this this could be the potentially it could be a very good document to build from. But it's whether but this is a government with an eighty seat majority, are they just going to push this through? So uh, I'm 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 intrigued mm. to actually see what happens in terms of public consultation and input from people that aren't just members of the Conservative Party, quite frankly. It's an interesting response from Bivda. They've uh, the um, plans to promote the integrated care and the health service. This a quote is, this new white paper offers an opportunity to promote joint working and collaboration in the NHS across different teams, departments and disciplines 
part of these reforms, we want to see greater use of IVDs in primary care settings, including GP surgeries and pharmacies, bringing a diagnosis closer to the patient and saving time and money by reducing trips to hospital. BIVDA, for those that don't know, is the British In Vitro Diagnostics Association. Um, I think, if anything's highlighted the essential role of um, diagnostics during the, uh, the time of the NHS, it's been COVID-19. You know, one part that the document builds upon is the NHS long-term plan, so it's taken in, into account, you know, the, the organisation's own um, plans, I, I, I suppose. And it's it starts off with the idea of, you know, better care across all parts of the healthcare journey, um, which Bivd is reflecting there in terms of diagnostics. The country does need to reduce the amount of people going to hospital because they're at capacity a lot. Um, we've seen um, during Jeremy Hunt's tenure, we saw bed numbers go down. It was obviously all this, the scandals with the junior doctors. I think we've saw, I think he pledged something like 5,000 extra GPs and he only got 136 um, or something along those figures. Um, so the, the idea of integrated care where people's condition is monitored, not, you know, not monitored as in, you know, having systems hooked up to you all the time, but monitored on a process level or on a, um, across the healthcare journey where primary care and secondary care and potentially social care actually communicate with each other. So the patient doesn't have to explain what's wrong with them at each stage or, you know, to each doctor they visit. And I think that's a large part of the problem with the NHS is that because it's such a large service, that systems that have been implemented in certain hospitals aren't implemented in other hospitals. And we have a, we have a hard time accessing patient data across different parts of the country. You know, so for one patient, one hospital might be able to see a patient's records, but if you travelled 40 minutes down the road, it may not be available there. Yeah, um, I, th I think I can safely say that this white paper is the starting gun of the latest political football match involving the NHS. Um, but um, the um, you mentioned social care there, actually, and you've mentioned um, uh, numbers in terms of staffing because the you, know, you you've you've touched upon the struggle for capacity, but there's there's inevitably going to be the argument of well, it, it needs more investment to get bed numbers up. I've seen that nursing applications, because as a result, following on from the pandemic, have actually, you know, soared. So I think it was on the front page of the Times earlier this week that there's, there's a, I think it's the biggest increase in nursing applications in about a decade, and that's following on from a pandemic, but also because after a deep recession, people going into public sector jobs, and you know, there is there is that appetite for 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 from people to be part of the front line. Uh, so to speak. So the numbers of people are there. It's a case of mm -hmm. supporting supporting them along the way. But since you touched on social care, I was surprised that there wasn't more mention of it, frankly. I thought there was an opportunity in this white paper to make it more of an, an NHS and social care service rather than the NHS and then the care service, if you, if you follow me. Yeah, I think social care has always been quite separate within the NHS, I, I believe. That's why we've seen just during COVID-19, patients admitted to care homes without second thought about how dangerous it's going to be for them to go there. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not, I'm not too well versed in that in that social care sector. It makes sense to have an oversight of it, not an, an overview of 
how social care operates within the UK. I think Jeremy Hunt was talking about um, before before it can be integrated, we need just in the numbers of nurses and, and, and doctors and people working through our care homes to, to increase a lot just to manage um, the number of patients. Because, you know, people are getting older, obviously, but, um, a, you know, a large part of what the NHS is, is battling now is an ageing population with chronic conditions who require a lot of time from the NHS across um, primary and secondary care. So it makes sense that if you have a lot of those patients within social care, then they would be a large priority. So, yeah, just quite surprising. I think there's another another aspect to take away from this is that Matt Hancock's been big on technology ever since he, he arrived at the Department of Health. I think a lot of people are going to welcome the technological aspect. Well, certainly a lot of those in the, in the industry seem to be welcoming the technological aspect, and we're seeing a lot of innovations that can you know help. No, it's not silver bullet, but help ad- address these concerns when it comes to managing chronic illness, uh, certainly, because I think we've got you know, certain wearables, for example, uh, there's lots of remote monitoring technology um, that can be used to, as, as you alluded to before, ease ease uh, capacity and ensure that the NHS isn't you know isn't full to capacity all the time. Basically, yeah, I think Matt Hancock's coming from like like I said earlier, he's coming from a good place because I think from his view, he's seen this collaboration right during COVID nineteen between. NHS, government, academia, pharmaceutical, med tech, life sciences in general, we've seen you know a massive amount of collaboration where technology has been brought to the market far faster than it ever would have been, you know, under normal circumstances where people aren't necessarily working together. So he's coming from a good a good part there. Um perhaps he's being a bit too eager with, you know, wanting to just push technology on, on onto the service because we've seen um, before that, that doesn't work across the service as a whole, because you know these these trusts are at such different levels of, um, I, I guess adaptability of or what services they already have. Some they have legacy software which can't be easily um, removed. There it was the whole paper going paperless by, I think it was like you know four deadlines that Jeremy Hunt set and he didn't meet one of them. Um. So it's a ma- it's a massive challenge to integrate technology within the, the NHS on a um a consistent level, you know. So you can go to one doctor doctor's practice with one provider of a an e clinical service to book your appointment, but then you can go to another GP practice and they don't have that. It's all it's still all done through paper. So there's this massive variability between the NHS, which doesn't help certain people, it helps other people. It's not for NHS's fault but simply because like i said earlier it's just this, it's this massive industry yeah I, I think i don't think you can knock the uh, the appetite for innovation that we've uh, we've seen over the years as well because there's been some quite remarkable stuff which of course you can read about across all of our life sciences sites uh yeah anything for a cheap blog there when it comes to uh appetite for innovation i think it moves us on nicely to the Life Science Competitive Indicators report that uh, I think that was released this week. Um, it, I think it, it, it's showing the positive numbers uh, by the looks of it. I mean, it shows that you know, the UK is a, a very good, very good and productive place for 
if anyone wants to do, do business in the life sciences sector. Um, do you have any in, initial takeaways from having a glance at the report, Reese? I think what you just said there is that the UK has always had quite a strong life sciences sector when you think about the, you know, the, the companies we report on across UK and Ireland. Um, certainly COVID-19 will have helped that a lot. There will be a lot of um, diagnostic exports and, and, and stuff like that and just deal making between you know pharmaceutical companies and governments and stuff like that. Um, I think one thing I was surprised of was that the UK export, exports in pharma between 2012 to 18 um, showed a decline, which is quite surprising. I don't know if that's due to sort of a, the global competitive nature of the pharmaceutical industry. You know, the US is a massive provider of pharmaceuticals. I think it's the biggest in the world. And you, you have China and Ind, in India for g- generics. Um, but UK and, and Europe are, you know, still up there in terms of the numbers they export. So... To see a decline, I, I, I would, I'd like to know what the reason behind that is. Yeah, it's one that took me by surprise as well, but um, no doubt that we'll we'll see, uh, see see an uptick for 2019, 20 and 21 when uh, when, when reports are published surrounding those years because uh, obviously there's this thing called COVID that we've only been talking about for the past 40 odd minutes or so. MedTech was a little bit of a mixed picture, I thought. Um, there was a, you know, there was a I think there was a decline from 2012, 40. I'm, I'm literally just trying to find the figures right now, but it, it, it showed, whereas there was a steady decline across pharma, there was more like a wave with medtech. It went down and then back up again. Um, it's a, I think it's a mm-hmm. interesting market to, to keep an eye on. I think that the, the trends are going to be interesting to keep an eye on, not just from, the, from these years that, that we report covers it because records data from 2012 to 2019 I think I'm right in saying so it you could argue it's a, a little bit out of date because of events of the past year but it's a good indicator of the uh, of whether the numbers that was that we'll see for 2020 and 2021 are soft or we've actually got a thriving industry uh, you know, operating on underneath all of it yeah one thing about the UK government's involvement within life sciences is that it has pushed the industry quite, quite, quite a lot. Um, over the years, it's been very supportive of the industry. Just in terms of the communications, it, it puts out, you know, um, and Bivda have commented on this one as well, um, relating to the government activity, where it says a number of projects have advanced, which help propel the sector towards growth objectives and an even better global standing. And then Viv dimensions things like the Biobank Genomics Project, the Accelerated Access Collaborative, Collaborative and the Voluntary Scheme for Branded Medicines Pricing and Access, and then things like R&D spending in the in the sector, which are looking to be raised to 2.4% of GDP by 2027, as, uh, as per the government's strategy. And apparently the government, the UK maintains its position with the second highest level of government spending on health research and development. Among, amongst comparators, um, and that's behind only the United States of America. So it uh, yeah, it inputs a lot of um, money into R and D. Yeah, I I find that fascinating. I think that's actually a very good blueprint for how uh, I think a lot of other sectors will look at life sciences with a bit of envy in in terms of you know the the amount of stimulation that the government has given with investments in new projects. It's a you know, to allow the sector to thrive and grow. I think 
I think there'll be others thinking, well, you know, can, can we have our slice of the cake, please? You know, right, whether they whether that's uh, fair or not, they'll they'll be after more, I'm sure. No, oh, definitely. But when you think about healthcare in general, it's sort of um, it makes a lot of sense for the government to put money into it because if it's going to increase the health healthiness of a, of a population. I mean, it just means you know they can keep us working for longer and make them more more money through taxes or whatever. Exactly, it just makes business sense more than anything. <laughs> I do believe there's one other report that we've got in here as well. Um, the public policy projects uh, they did uh, digitization of healthcare and medical technologies, and they listed twelve recommendations. And if my computer loads quickly enough, we'll uh, I'll, I'll be able to see them. But I, I, I did I did skim read through this and I thought and I'm always interested to see the follow up because this is the first part of the report. There is this phase two of the report is due due out later in the year. I'm curious as to whether there's going to be meat on meat on the bone. Okay, so in this in this document, we've got the twelve recommendations, and as you can hear, I'm taking over from Ian because we've had a little bit of uh, an audio issue there. But um, the first one is to place digital innovation at the heart of healthcare reform. We've got. Uh, empower patients to become informed co-creators of their own health, implement a prevention-first approach, legislate for better data access, interoperability and protection, review effective digital solutions used during the pandemic, map the role of the digital in the patient pathway, fund digital-enabled transformation to level up services, unleash the potential of personal health data, promote a diverse and digital-centric leadership, put data at the centre of decision-making, reinforce a culture of innovation and collaboration and implement learnings to develop digital skills. So nothing we haven't heard before, I think, Ian. Uh, no, I mean the the unleash the potential one is an interesting uh is an interesting one if you ask me, because that that sounds like a good idea. But can we um, can we hear how that's put into practice? Well there's there's actually a little bit of a worry here because um the blurb underneath that um, that bullet point says, given the successful development of the NHS app during the pandemic, NHS Digital should scope options to embed it more widely across care pathways. Now, the app was useful, no, no doubt, um, but when it was first developed, it did not go to a smooth launch at all. So, um, yeah, I, I, I suppose it was put into use quite well during the pandemic just to, um, to monitor and track and trace where individuals were were getting COVID. It's a weird one, the NHS app, because I don't know why the service didn't push it more widely across people in general before COVID-19. You'd think if you can access all your health data through one app, that's what you'd want to, to, to have. But I think it was quite a cumbersome thing when it was first released, and it was only re- released to certain parts of the population at once, um, at one time. I think you may have actually touched upon that earlier on in our discussion about the NHS dealing with you know, an ageing society. And the fact that the likes of me and you would probably find that appealing, but would someone who who is say in their seventies mm. or eighties probably accesses the service more on a, on a more frequent basis? Are they are they going to be appealed by that? I don't know because well I don't fit into that demographic, but that must must have been a consideration. Um, the um, yeah, I actually. I did, I did find a little little bits of that report quite interesting from what from what I could read. Um, but it, yeah, you're right in saying that this is 
nothing that we haven't heard before in large parts, but I'm really intrigued to see if there's a almost like a, a policy document follow-up from Yeah, it's arguments and points we've heard before, especially sort of when you, it's, it's a strange one because when you speak to say like um, private companies who are developing, you know, wearable technologies or medical technologies or, or whatever, there's always this point about having people informed about their own health. And that's why we have, you know, the Samsung doing health services. We have the Apple Watch trying to help out with that. But from local government and, or, and like the healthcare providers like the NHS, it's very hard to access your patient data. It's very hard to have it all in one place because it's such a disparate system. So it's, it's a, it, it is a necessity, I think, just for people to understand um, the records of their health if they need to access that just and, and the communication as well. So GPs and clinicians can have more data um, to, to work on to really get a, a holistic understanding of how healthy a person is. And I think that should be empowered through the, like, mm-hmm. through the, through the patient himself. I think they should be able to access a lot of data, but unfortunately, right now it's um, it's difficult to do that, unless you are, you know, buying a, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch and doing it yourself. But even then, you know, it's not like a. I know they're clinical grade um, medical devices, some of them, but it's not on the level of like you know, a GP giving a, a run through of, of your of your health. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a that could be uh, something that feeds into when we actually come on to look at the. Uh, future of health uh, in the future but uh, I think that just about wraps up this episode of the MedTalk podcast uh, be sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes and better yet leave us a review as we'd love to hear from some of our listeners but until next time thank you for listening and stay safe you've been listening to the MedTalk podcast make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud Spotify or iTunes Thanks for listening.